Entrepreneurship is very uncomfortable. People think, hey, I love doing X, so that's what I'm going to start a business doing. And in reality, if you're doing entrepreneurship the right way, the only things that you're doing are recruiting, hiring, firing, delegating, problem solving, and that's about it. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Well, today I get to share with you a conversation that our COO, Zach Estes, hosted with Nick Huber. Now, Nick is an impact-driven leader through and through. He's a business owner, so he's a practitioner with over 175 team members spread across the globe that all support eight separate businesses. And in the process of building up those eight separate businesses, Nick has also built a pretty remarkable personal platform. He has over 300,000 followers on Twitter and 45,000 followers on LinkedIn. And people seem to be flocking to Nick's perspective because his outlook and perspective on business and leadership is uniquely simple, straightforward, and direct. I asked Zach what you should be prepared to expect from this conversation, and here's what he said. He said, expect to be challenged. You're going to be challenged by Nick's innate ability to simplify what most of us tend to complicate. Uh, I hope you're as excited about this conversation as I am. Here's Zach Estes with Nick Huber. Man, I've been following you for a little bit, and I first found you on my first million via Sampar and Sean. And I just want to I just want to start with <laughs> your Twitter. Sam originally mentioned that a lot of people hate you, and I just never I never could understand that. I'm I'm really attracted to the things that you say, the just like the really common sense things that you talk about. But your <laughs> your Twitter profile is currently named the Deck Building Guy. Talk mm-hmm. me through what that means and why why I'm even bringing that up. Yeah, so I'm everybody. I like to think and I like to tell people that I have a pretty disciplined and grand plan with Twitter. And I guess part of that is true. We can talk about some of my career goals and what I do. But I'm a human and I have a sense of humor and I like to I like to make people mad who get mad about. There's nothing dumber than getting angry about what a stranger puts on the internet. I can't rationalize in my head how, how a human being is sitting somewhere <laughs> with their family, they're at work, they're alone with their own thoughts, they're doing whatever they want to be doing in that very moment, and they're going to take time out of that to get angry about what a stranger says on the internet. That baffles me. So I just, just like how my sister used to get all upset when I would pick on her when I was little, just something makes me want to just keep picking on these idiots. Yeah, sure. Totally. So, okay. So you posted a tweet. This is, we're recording this on June 12th. You posted this on June 10th. Said I added this deck to one. (laughs) I've I've literally been laughing for like 10 minutes on this. I added this deck to one of my rental properties. I was able to take the rent up from $700 to $1,200 per month. The tenant moved out, but I rented it quickly at the higher amount. This is the way you make more cash as a landlord and make your tenants' lives better. Win-win. And can you just describe? Can you describe the picture for us? That was some of my best work. You know, that was on Saturday morning, right? Yeah, I had a yeah. I had a little headache. I was out the night before with some friends, and I get up and my morning routine is I go sit on the pot and I tweet. And I saw that, or I scroll Twitter. I'm not even tweeting yet. And I was scrolling Twitter and I saw that picture of that house with that deck. 
somewhere. And I just laughed. I was like, man, that is, that is funny. And it was just some of my best work came to me right then. And I, I wrote that tweet and hit send and I put my phone down for like 45 minutes and I came back and it's pretty rare when they're picked up by the woke mob in the first 40 minutes, but that one went nuts and people got really upset. Yeah. Even though it was obviously not true. Obviously. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But it's just, it's hysterical and it's hilarious and, and so funny. So anyways, I, I just really appreciate about that about you. Like you don't have a stick shoved up your butt and you're just a real guy. And I appreciate the things that you talk about. Um, and I think that this is just a funny reflection of that. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all a joke, right? I mean, totally. the the fact that people, and I know that Twitter and these social media apps have this, this whole corner of their user base, which is actually probably the majority of users that absolutely hate capitalists. They hate people who make money. They hate people who run businesses and they hate people who own property and rent it out. Hmm. And they were, literally, I got probably 20 or 30 DMs from people who, who, who kind of glorify the Mao's days where China, you know, murdered all the landlords in one of their towns there's people who think that we're bad for the world, but in reality, going after profit and trying to make your life better is not only the ticket to a better life for almost every immigrant and why they come to America and why America is so great, but also it makes the life, it makes the world better. Like our, we wouldn't have anything that we have if people didn't, you know, try to make profit. So I think it's an amazing system and I think it's hilarious that people hate it. So I just, I pick on them. Yeah, for sure. That's fascinating. So so this is the Path for Growth podcast and some of the things that we teach within Path for Growth uh, to our customers, and they're all mostly business owners or operators um, running $1 million to $500 million businesses. Our whole shtick here is like grow healthily. Like how can we figure out a way to grow your business in such a healthy way that it's not destroying your marriage and your life outside of the business? You're able to lead people in such a way that they're like really enjoying their professions and their careers, their team, the strategies associated with that. Your customers are blessed by the value that you provide. All of those things, you can do it. It's possible and you just have to act and take the right actions. So one of the things that just stand out to me about you is like, I think you're one of the few people that actually understand the idea of like intrinsic value. And I didn't prep you at all for this, but if you want to go there with me, I'd just love to hear you discuss some of that. Like what like why aren't you attracted to the super unicorns in digital software world? Like why are you attracted to more blue collar, sweaty startup, boring businesses, so to speak? Yeah. And I that's why I love your mission because I think that there's two sides of me and you and I are on the same team. There's two sides of kind of entrepreneurship media. There's one entrepreneurship media that gets all the clicks, that is super sexy, where the autobiographies are written. And that is the new idea, shark tank, mm-hmm. change the world entrepreneurship. And if you go around and you walk around, the, you walk around the streets and I walked outside of my house and I go up to people and I'd say, if I say the word entrepreneurship, what do you think of? The answers would be shark tank. They'd be, if you were on college campus, it would be Y Combinator. It would be TechCrunch. And if you were outside of college campus, it would be Elon Musk, um, Mark Zuckerberg, It'd be these titans of business, these unicorns. In my opinion, there's just nothing less realistic for the average person. There's nothing less realistic. And I have so many friends. I was blessed enough to run track at an Ivy League school. I have so many friends who got caught up in that whole dream of entrepreneurship and tech. And they went out and raised money and they had their new ideas. And they all have jobs today. 
Nothing wrong with jobs. Yeah. I think jobs are amazing too. And we can talk about some of the benefits and how I'm a, I'm a big proponent that even if you do have a job, you can implement delegation and management and growth marketing and kind mm. of self-promotion to, to make your life better and earn more money. But it, it came to me pretty quickly that I didn't pick up an entrepreneurship book or study entrepreneurship until I had been in business for about a year. I knew what the word was. I'd heard the word entrepreneurship, but I didn't, I didn't really consider myself an entrepreneur. I didn't put entrepreneur in my bio. I didn't tout myself as a business, you know, titan as an entrepreneur, as a startup. I never heard the word startup until many years later, but I just think entrepreneurship is kind of a, an approachable thing. But unfortunately the media makes it unapproachable for almost everybody. Yeah. So talk us through, uh, take me back to year one. What was year one? Uh, what did that look like? And where did you start? I started a, a moving and storage company for students because I had posted a, an apartment on Craigslist for rent, but so did everybody else when the, when the school year was over. I was a junior at Cornell in Ithaca, 2011. And a kid's mom sent me an email and said, hey, I want to store my stuff in your apartment. And I was like, damn, well, I'm not getting a single person asking me to rent this place, so I might as well. And she's like, well, you got to go pick it up. And she told me it was like three boxes. It ended up being 30 boxes. She only paid me 150 bucks for the whole summer to pick it up and store it and re-deliver it. But I did it. And once that stuff was in my room, I was like, well, I can't really, you know, rent it now. So I might as well get more people to do this. So I ran around with flyers, started busting it, went to the fraternity and sorority, you know, meetings and pitched my storage company. And the next thing I knew, I had filled up my entire room, my three roommates' rooms with stuff. A student storage business was born with a partner. Five years later, we were in 12 states at 25 major colleges, and we were doing about 2.2 million a year in revenue. It was also the hardest business in the world, and I learned how to run a company. I, hmm. I say that delegation and hiring and management and entrepreneurship is a muscle. And the problem, another big problem with entrepreneurship is that people read and study entrepreneurship and think that that makes them a better entrepreneur. Hmm. Just like, and that sounds ridiculous to me, just like it would sound ridiculous to the average person if I said, okay, you want to build muscle. If you want to build muscle and get fit, you need to read and study and build <laughs> workout plans and analyze the human anatomy. That's not how this all works. So if you're listening to me yeah. and Zach here talk and you want to get better at entrepreneurship, it's not going to happen. I mean, once you're in the trenches and you have something going on, then yes, you can take a lot of things and you can apply it. But many people think that entrepreneurship is like an art and not a skill and not a muscle. And the best way to become a better entrepreneur is go to the gym and pick up the damn weight and lift the weight over and over and over again. And that's what I did in a really hard business. I learned how to hire people. I learned how to fire people. I learned how to negotiate with landlords. I learned that there is no book. I couldn't turn the page back and look up the answer. I had to be resourceful. I had to make decisions. And I made a lot of low stake decisions. And decision making mm -hmm. is also kind of a muscle and you get better at it as you exercise it. And the problem with American culture is that kids nowadays, their parents make all their decisions for them and they keep them in a little bubble. So they have no low stake decisions so that when the stakes become higher and it comes time to like, hey, let's buy a house, let's rent an apartment, let's get a job, let's pick a college, let's, let's figure out how much of a car payment we can afford. They're, they, they're totally clueless when it comes to making decisions. So yeah, entrepreneurship was the same way. I started with a low stakes business, low risk service business, got better and better and better at making decisions. My, my operational chops got better. And um, started a, a real estate company in 2017 with a, a, a self-storage development, put some proceeds from that moving company into that business. Fast forward uh, three years, that, you know, $2.9 million, the building that we built for $2.9 million is, you know, worth about $11 million today. It's been a, a life-changing event for me, just one deal. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of 
got serious about Twitter in 2020, started tweeting, grew that you know list and met a lot of interesting people who invested in my deals. Have since in the last year, have started several other companies, kind of growing and growing and growing as kind of get better here and there. Yeah, it's fascinating. One of the, I recently, I think I just recently posted about this probably on LinkedIn and Twitter and stuff, but you talking about you can't, you can't lose fat and build muscle by reading books about it. Just the idea of like professionals practice and amateurs don't. And when it comes to like owning a business, like you got to practice all of those different muscles, like you said, like delegation, management, decision-making, all of those things. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting dilemma for people is that like entrepreneurship is very uncomfortable. People think, hey, I love doing X, so that's what I'm going to start a business doing. And in reality, if you're doing entrepreneurship the right way, the only things that you're doing are recruiting, hiring, firing, delegating, problem solving, and that's about it. Yeah. Like if you're running a business the right way. So if it, in my mind, hey, if I, I love golf, but I'm not going to try to start a golf company. I love social media, but I'm not going to start a you know, creator agency. I'm going to look at the market unemotionally, and I'm going to try to make a rational decision of, hey, if I invest, I kind of think about it like I'm a poker player. If I invest my time, which are the chips, if I invest my chips, I have an opportunity to invest it anywhere. Where is the most likely, where are the best odds that I can win? So instead of picking what I want to do, I'm going to think, hey, what are the good businesses? And I'm going to go after those. Okay, so I, I think I think you've obviously demonstrated your competence in going from here to there, starting with your first business and, and where you are now. And I would imagine based on this like investment portfolio, there's a, you have a lot of partners or shareholders associated with that who have who have kind of like jumped on the bus with you and say, mm-hmm. I like where Nick's going. I want to I want a piece of that. Whenever you were first starting out, or maybe around that time frame. Did you have a group of people that you communicated with? Like who, were you doing this alone? Were you able to kind of wrestle with people to grow yourself or, or yeah, what did that look like? Yeah, so I've never done this alone. I think from the beginning, my job as an entrepreneur is to attract and motivate talented people to come on to kind of follow me and build companies, work for me, whatever. Like they needed to trust me. They needed to be sold in on the vision. Hmm. And then, yeah, I had, business partners along the way who were my peers and then we were bouncing ideas off each other. They were telling me that I was an idiot or they were agreeing with me. And that that's another interesting note is that I think the surrounding yourself with yes people is very easy, especially after you become successful. It's hmm. all right, I'm Nick. I've built this million dollar, multi-million dollar real estate portfolio. I've had this successful exit. What I say goes. I'm right, especially since I just preached to myself on Twitter, as you see. It's easy for me to just think, oh, I'm, I'm right about this. Everybody sure. else can screw off. If you don't agree with me, then go work for somebody else. But I've kind of made a point to surround myself with people who are not afraid to disagree with me. And I actually bring it up often. And if somebody inside of one of my companies says, hey, Nick, I think we're making a mistake here. I think you're wrong. That's pretty important to me if it's one of the people that I trust. And an example of that is 2022, early 2022, my operator at my real estate private equity company. Name's Kevin. He comes to me, he says, Nick, um, these interest rates are going up fast. Like we need to stop paying as much for these deals. It's going to get bad. And I think, I think we got to be really careful. I had actually, he was on vacation. I'd actually made an offer on a property and the offer was accepted. It was signed. He comes back to me, says, Nick, this is not a good deal. Hmm. And I'm like, who the hell are you to tell me that the deal that I made an offer on is not a good deal to do? But no, I didn't, I didn't respond like that. I, uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> I said, okay, tell me why. And we didn't do the deal. And I'm very thankful that we didn't do that deal. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. Okay. Just to like relate this back to some of the principles and practices that we teach. We, we regularly say, so I'm the COO of Path for Growth. The founder, owner, CEO is Alex Judd. And he's typically the host of this podcast. I've interviewed a couple of the folks just that I have unique interest in. And uh, one of the things about our relationship, we kind of operate off of an EOS-ish model um, where I'm the integrator and he's the visionary. And I'm always talking about how I need to operate in the best interest of Alex. And that may not always align with his interests. And I also have a hypothesis and opinion about what best is. And I need to like come to the table with that. That's part of my role. That's part of my friendship with him is that I care about him and need to need to act on that. And so we've built up that trust and relationship in which I can do that. It sounds like you promote that within your organization too. Have you ever ha- experienced a time where that light bulb clicked of like you went from maybe incentivizing people to be yes men to realizing, oh, I need all of them to show up and, and give me feedback if, if they're not already doing it? Yeah, there's a lot of advice out there on advice, on the topic of advice. What advice do you take? There's advice mm. all over the place. And there's nothing that you get more of than unsolicited advice. Hmm. Okay, there's armchair quarterbacks, I call them. They're all over the place. There's, these are people that they talk about doing business. They have all these great ideas about doing business. They find a way to make their social media uh, profile look like they're doing big business. But in reality, they've never done anything. But all they do is sit back and tell people how to do business. Hmm. There's people that are running multi-million dollar companies they're posting, if Jeff Bezos got active on Twitter all of a sudden, he would get just ripped by all these people sitting in their parents' basements telling him how to do business. That's just a, a fact of life. Another side of it, on the absolute opposite side of it, I have gotten to know, and some would say I am one of them, there's a lot of really dumb people who have made a ton of money. Okay? There's a lot of very wealthy people who are not competent. They got courage. They hired the right people. They made a couple key decisions right. And in business, you have 500 decisions to make in the first year you start a business. If you get four of them right, you're probably going to be successful. You can make Mm. 300 of them wrong. You can make 75% of the decisions. You can get incorrect and you can still get rich. Business is a lot about just putting yourself in the game and going for a ride. So there's a lot of people who have been really successful that that have no idea how the world works in my experience. So I have... Yes, I will weigh advice that I get from somebody who has been successful or a team member of mine that has, has made good decisions in the past and they're respected. Sure. I'll weigh their advice heavier, but I'm going to take advice from anybody, anybody. People always say like, why would you take advice from somebody who's not where you are? And hmm. I think that's the worst advice that you could get. I, I'm going to take advice from everybody, but I'm going to throw about 80% of it out. That doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me. Look, you go on my Twitter my life is different than your life. There's nuance to everything. Every single business is different. There's a hundred different ways to win. There's so much nuance when it comes to entrepreneurship, hiring, firing, managing. There's a million ways to win. So when you're reading my world and my mind on my social media accounts, on my podcast, whatever it is, I, I expect people to just throw out what doesn't apply to them. Just throw hmm. it out. So I can listen to hated people, ignorant people, dumb people, and I'm going to get something from that because some of what they say could ring true to situations that I'm in. So I've gotten some of the best advice that I've ever gotten from my wife's grandfather. He's 89 hmm. years old, was never an entrepreneur, actually went bankrupt in the past, 
has since built wealth. Great. He's a, he's just a good street smart person, but he's not what people would look at and say, oh, this is a, this is a business titan. Sure. But damn, his street smarts are good. You mentioned the game, like the game of business. I want to get into this. Like, what's your philosophy on this? Okay, you're, you're generating profit. Maybe that's the end outcome of capitalism at its, at its core. But what's that for? What are, what are you thinking about that? What is Nick Huber doing with profit? Yeah, what's your philosophy on like the why behind it? I think the, the saddest thing, and, and look, this is kind of a controversial take and it, it might be a, something that people don't want to hear, but I'm going to say sure. it. If you want to change the world, for the better, if you want to impact the most people, if you have causes or missions that you really care about, if you feel deeply about it, if you care about politics and you want to impact politics, if you care about your church and you want to impact your church, if you care about mistreated people in this world, there's one way to have the most impact. There's one way. And you know what it is. It's money. Period. If you want to impact the world, get rich. I want to spread my message of entrepreneurship. I want to spread my message of, you know, delegating and hiring and, and you know, leveraging your time. I want to spread my message of trades and, and our physical world and how building these businesses, these service businesses and these real world businesses that you can touch and you can see and you can feel. I want to spread that message and I want to impact as many people as possible. And the best way to do that is to make money. So that's my game. Love it. But why like the blue collar boring sweaty businesses why the why the tangible physical businesses that you can touch and feel and why not software as a service software as a service can be great and look there's different people with different competitive advantages like i'm not speaking to everybody i was not a yeah. software developer i'm not a gifted software person i think the lowest risk way to do business is to well i'll, I'll back up a little bit more most people think oh i'm going to start a business and they go on their computer and they start typing around the internet and they go on social media, they go on forums about entrepreneurship, they go on entrepreneurship mm. Reddit, they just start looking all over the place at people who think about entrepreneurship. And they're communicating and talking to only people who are thinking about entrepreneurship instead of looking mm. at the average person. I think way more people who are interested in entrepreneurship need to go spend a day walking around Walmart. That sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous, but that is the average American. The mm. average American is not worried about how fast their data gets from their, you know, their CRM to their communication tools. The average person in America is worried about how they're going to pay all their bills, keep their house clean and maintained, stop leaks under their sink, cut their grass, and have enough money coming in next Thursday so that they can pay their rent on Friday. That's what the average American is thinking about. And when you look around it and when you close your computer and you walk around mm. your town and you start thinking about business, like I, I, my dad instilled this in me. And that's why one of the things that made me a good entrepreneur, when I walk around the world, I'm thinking, oh, how does that company make money? How does this company make money? When I walk in a restaurant, I'm doing math in my head, like how much money per table do they need to make each night? If their margins on food are 70% and the, and the tips are included and they got to pay rent, how does this restaurant make it? And how many people would they need to have here to make money? Or you see an ice cream shop. Okay. They're paying this person probably $12 an hour. They're open for 10 hours a day. I know they got about $200 a day in labor and their utilities are probably $200 a day because, or, you know, $450 a month because of all these freezers and they got to pay rent. And I'm just thinking about how business works. And when you walk around and Oh, last week I called for a lawn care company to come in or a tree company to come and cut this giant tree down in my backyard. I paid him $1,400 and three guys were at my house for an hour and a half. 
<laughs> I didn't sweet. I didn't have to do very much math to realize that the owner of that business is making pretty good money. Yes, they had an $80,000 machine that they came up and boomed themselves up into my tree with. So yes, there's a little bit more to it. But if you start walking around the world with an inquisitive mind of, hey, how does this company make money? You can start to spot opportunities and you can start, start to see what are good businesses, what are bad businesses. And um, you know, I've always done that to kind of see where the opportunity might lie. I love that. One of the simplest like practices that I often talk to people about is just the idea of observation, particularly wherever you're a customer. And so if you're going to a coffee shop or a restaurant or a hotel and you get to be the customer, just like sit back in the corner, be a customer and observe how the operations work. Like that is one of my favorite things to do because then you can see like, wow, are they messing up here? Are they, am I waiting uh, did I get a defect? Is someone polite to me? Or like, how's the customer interaction happening here? Yep. All of those things, especially as a customer, you don't have to be a customer, but just being able to like go and observe those places. I think you learned the biggest principles and practices that you can apply to any business. Yep. I walked in, a, uh, we have a favorite restaurant right down the street from me. It's called the Palmas right here in Athens. I, I ordered pizza there on Saturday. So two days ago, I go in to pick it up and the bartender who's serving the six people sitting at the bar She's serving the six people at the bar. She has got a line at the end of the bar for people taking takeout that she is giving the pizza to, taking payments from. And she's also answering the phone for people calling in. So there's 20 people in that restaurant. There's eight in the back. You know, there's two, three or four bussers. There's, and then there's wait staff. There's 20 people in that restaurant. And one person is the bottleneck that slows everything down because yep. they got her doing too many jobs. <laughs> That's just an observation as a business owner that you see when you walk around thinking inquisitively about, hey, if I were managing this place, what would I do differently? Or how good of a business is this? When you're walking into a restaurant and you see 20 people and you realize that, oh my God, they're doing kind of hard work and I got to be able to pay them less than $15 an hour to work in this kitchen. It doesn't take too long to realize that, oh, that's a pretty hard business. <laughs> okay. So a little background on me. My background's in manufacturing engineering and I studied um, industrial engineering in college and then I went into healthcare operations and and then I just picked up this bug and this, I, th I think, skill and strength of being able to look at an organization and make it flow. And it sounds like you've picked up a lot of those principles and practices as well. Have you ever studied lean and like value and waste and all of those things? Have you, have you ever heard of the book called The Goal by Elihu yeah. Coldrat? Yep, absolutely. Very simple book about mm -hmm. a factory that he's, he's tasked with taking over and the output of the factory is a, is a combination of, you know, 20 different machines and about 400 different people. And it's just the perfect exemplification of any organization. Any company is just a group of people. They're all working on different things and they're spitting out something to customers or they're spitting out 10 things to customers. And somewhere along the line, that process gets held up. Most of the time in small businesses, the people that are listening and even a lot of my companies, less than 10 people, most of the time that bottleneck is the owner of the business. The owner of the business is where all the decisions go to die and where all the problems go. And so the owners, they end up getting caught playing defense all day. Like I look at business, I'm, I'm doing one of two things. I'm doing offensive things. I'm planning for the future. I'm doing important things that are not urgent or I'm playing defense. I'm running around putting out fires. Other things are happening and I'm reacting. I'm the mm -hmm. linebacker, the customer or my employees or any kind of problem. They're the quarterback and I'm just reacting to what they're doing. I'm playing defense. When I'm in my zone and when things are going well, Things are flowing. There's no fires. There's no problems coming to me. I'm not the bottleneck of the business and I get to play offense. I get to work on hiring, marketing, sales, the things that fuel the company in the long run. Yeah. 
I think a lot of people struggle. I notice this. I get a lot of questions from our members and from uh, various owners and operators about the idea of value and waste. And I think one of the things that attracts me to um, your brand and Sweaty Startup and things along those lines is the idea of like tangible and intrinsic value. One of the, one of the things I just blatantly say is like, yes, we're a coaching business. And by definition, we're not adding any intrinsic value. Our goal really should be to uh, reduce waste in the economy. Like that's that's the service that we're providing. Whereas someone who's cutting lawns or plumbing your facilities or your house, building decks, any of those things, right? Those are adding value to the economy. And so you have these two kind of levers. You can add value and you can reduce waste. And a lot of people think that it just requires a they don't even have the two categories in their head as to what those two things are. And I think one of the things that I'm most, I don't know, offensive against or like combative against is people thinking that they're delivering value where really they're reducing waste and not realizing like what change in the economy that they're making. And so I, all that to say, I think if you assume that you're adding intrinsic value to the economy where really your role is reduction in waste I think you have like too high of, of a perspective of yourself and just need to like make those adjustments to realize, okay, well, what are we doing to actually best serve the customer right now? Like one of the things um, for our coaching team is I'm, I'm interested in our coaches should know at any moment where their clients are on these two things. Are they focused on growing volume or are they focused on growing capacity? Like what's most important right now mm-hmm. in that business's season? Uh, because it's one or the two. And so like whenever you're thinking about growing capacity, it could be infrastructure and all of those things, but it could also be reduction of waste so that you free up capacity to actually add value. Every business has one of two problems. They either have a customer problem, meaning they need more customers, or they have an employee problem, which is the capacity side. Like they don't have the ability to deliver enough services to the overwhelming customer volume that they have. So as a business owner, you're always... You're chasing one of those two things. There's one of them is the bottleneck. You either don't have enough customers or your company's not ready for more customers. So you're Mm -hmm. building the product. This is the hardest part, right? It's like the customers, for me, has always been the easy part. I'm a marketer. For some people, they really struggle with the customer part. For me, it's the building the systems inside where you're reducing waste and you're allocating resources. And as a business owner, I always consider myself just an allocator of resources, period. The people who, Hmm. you're in a town, you're running a lawn care company, the people who need lawn care services they're getting it somewhere. My job is to market to find them and then be more efficient in allocating resources, which are people and lawnmowers to the ground to get that job actually done. So all I'm doing is allocating resources. I'm attracting talent, I'm hiring them, I'm training them, buying equipment, and I'm putting it to work for customers, delivering what they want. And that's the same for lawn care companies, consulting companies, manufacturing companies, any of it. So it's always, it's always a balancing act of customers or people. Neither one of them yeah. are easy. Totally. Okay. So let's let's talk about like reducing waste and efficiency. One of the things that you've, I think, just like talked about a lot recently and I've been looking into more is this company called Shepherd. And the thing that sticks out the most to me about Shepherd, and maybe I'll have you explain Shepherd here in a second, and then we can jump in. But it's essentially, um, actually, would you mind explaining it? Just giving yeah, so a quick there's, pitch of like what I mean, it is. If we zoom out macroeconomically, there's not enough Americans. There's not enough people in the United States to do all the work that the people need to get done. 
Quality of life mm. keeps getting better. We have more and more needs as consumers for cleaners, you know, people to basically keep our entire world clean and well-maintained and built, whether that be mowing lawns, scrubbing windows, replacing HVAC units, building homes, whatever it might be. There's not enough humans in America to do the work that's required. So one of the really easy ways to reduce waste is to hire people now that we have technology and really fast internet, hire people from the other side of the world where they have more people than work that needs done. The Philippines is a country where they have more people in the Philippines than actual work that needs done there. So, mm. um, but yeah, I'm, I'm an investor and a customer of a company called Shepard. And 2021 is when my life changed forever and that uh, I employed Shepard as a recruiter to bring me a hire. I was going to make a hire in the Philippines. I'd heard that all the big corporations have employees in the Philippines. You can hire them for $4 an hour. I was going to be the guy to make that leap and, and hire one. They built the job description for me and they brought me three candidates and they lined them up and I interviewed all three of them in, in, a, in an hour period. I did three 20-minute interviews in a row and they blew me away and I hired all three employees. Wow. Hired all three of them for $10,000 a year. One of them now, we're, three, we're almost three years later, one of them is the head of customer service at my real estate company. They manage wow. 12 reps who answer the phone 24-7, 365, and they sell units and they run auctions and they do everything needed at my customers at my company. And at my real estate company, we have 45 employees, 35 of them are in Colombia and the Philippines hired through Support Shepherd. We've just found a tremendous competitive advantage by using a company called Shepherd to recruit talent overseas and lost hire them. And their website's supportshepherd.com. So I, I like to I like to think about things unemotionally, and I've already I've already broached this topic with a bunch of folks, and they're immediately like, "Oh, you're offshoring jobs, you're sending it to slave labor, like they have no standard of living, all of these things." Like, what's your rebuttal to that? I was I don't tell this story in public, but I'll tell it to you. I was in a meeting about six months ago with some people on my team, and one one of the guys on my team was like, "Hey, Nick." stay on after the call. And I'm like, Oh God, they're going to complain about, you know, whatever. They're going to ask for more money, something along those lines, right? Something's not right. And it was one of our employees in the Philippines. And he goes, Nick, I just want you to know that before I got this job, before I got this job working for your company, I was getting in a crammed bus, overloaded Mm -hmm. bus with about 60 people. And I was taking it on a 30 minute commute to a labor job for half this much money. And my sister lives with me and our mom who's disabled lives with me. And before I got this job, my sister was a sex worker wow. to take care of my mom. And I just want to thank you because she doesn't have to do that anymore. <laughs> and I was just like, are you kidding me? Yeah. It's like, wow. Wow. So yeah, we have across my portfolio of companies. We have hundreds of employees in the Philippines and Colombia, and people think of it as, Oh, Americans are losing out. This is slave labor these are human beings and these are phenomenal opportunities to earn us dollars when their currencies are getting inflated away and their, and their standard of living is getting crushed. So the people who say that, in my opinion, are either ignorant to how things actually work and B they think that people in America are entitled to things just because they're American and that people in these other countries are lesser humans. And that's not true. Wow. People know me and like my brand as very like pro American. And I think this has, like broaching this topic out of ignorance has challenged me the most of just like considering 
what do I think is right? What do I think is possible? And balancing both things of like morally what's happening. Well, there is this almost sort of arbitrage of us finding kind of what you were saying, like there's a supply and demand offset of we can offer someone 2x the amount of income in a place that has a really low, more affordable standard of living than ours. Even though like if you were to one for one the ratio, they may be living in a single family home, all of those things. And it, and it just kind of blew my mind as far as like, I guess just what's possible and what's what's right. And instead of just like swallowing the pill of pro-American, keep American jobs here, I've started to wrestle with this whole idea of like kind of coming back to like sweaty startup, blue collar stuff. We're losing our infrastructure. Like people don't want to do that work. And really that's the work that needs to be done here to maintain the society that we want. People spend 99% of their lives in buildings. And yeah. our buildings, our buildings are older, they're dirtier, and they need maintenance. And there's nobody to do the work. Right. I mean, like I'm, I'm a part of that, right? Like I'm, I work on a laptop in an office all day long. I used to work in a manufacturing plant for a couple of years, but all of that to say, like, can you compete with the rest of the world, maybe holistically at a macro level? Can you compete with the rest of the world and keep doing what we're doing? Eventually, I see that there's going to be like this balance of essentially the pay, like the labor, the demand for such jobs that are way more blue collar, just going to go through the roof. And where like software developers and things like that, um, even like marketers and virtual assistants, you know, all of the more digital things are going to get off, like go go outside of America to people who have cheaper standards of living. Yeah, I think the the number one way to guarantee that you have job security forever is to get good at communicating and managing other people because that's mm-hmm. something that can't really be outsourced. And even if it can be, like anywhere in the world that you can do that, you can make really good money um, regardless of your natural currency. You know, everybody who hates on when, when I tweet about Shepard and hiring folks and giving people in, in other countries opportunity, they tweet from their iPhone made in Bangladesh, assembled in Bangladesh for two twenty five an hour by seventeen year olds. Yeah, it's just there's a lot of there's a lot of hypocrisy. I think the the fact that small business gets shamed for hiring and and building a sustainable company this way is it's just shameful because all of our big corporations are doing it. You know, Fortune five hundred. 490 of them have employees that are, you know, wage arbitrage in other countries. I have a, I have a real estate private, and I'll just give you another example. I have a real estate private equity company that I told you about 45 Mm -hmm. employees at this company. The last year in real estate has been brutal. Interest rates going up, values going down, transaction volume is off a cliff, meaning less people are buying and selling buildings right now. All the people who make a living in the real estate business are hurting right now mortgage loan officers, all the attorneys and engineers and surveyors and uh, construction folks, all of them are starting to get hurt by the fact that the industry is really slowing down. We have 1.3 million a year of overhead, meaning to keep my 45 people employed, it's $1.3 million a year. I haven't had to lay anybody off. I can continue to pay all my talent. If we're hiring only in America, and we had 45 employees, I'd have 3.3 to 3.5 million a year of overhead. So I can operate my company for less than half of what my competitors are paying, and they're all laying people off like crazy. And we're not. None of the Americans on my team have gotten laid off. 
So, okay, that talks about the like the flexibility and the one like a lean principle that you want to be able to apply is if you're like if you're like perfectly lean, then you're actually not lean because any hiccup in the system is going to throw you off. And so that's that's something that's really interesting to me. One, two, from this going back to this idea of like efficiency and waste in the system, you know, I see so many like service based companies, especially like remote digital website builders, all of those things, marketing uh, companies you know, there's a, there's a company that has quoted me like four grand a month for some like top of funnel social media type marketing. And I could do that. And it's an American based company, or I could take those same resources and hire four full-time people to build out an entire marketing team. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think about like, what's the return on the investment whenever I'm thinking about like stewardship of, of those resources, what's the return on the investment of that? And mm-hmm it's inappropriate to waste those resources. Yep. Our job as business owners is to keep the company healthy, period. Like our job, that's our job to all of the, our employees and their families. Our job is to keep the company healthy so that we can continue to, to pay them. And, um, you know, you got to do what you got to do in a competitive, ever-changing environment to, to earn a living. Yeah, and so that's, that's part of where I was like, at the end of the day, you're also thinking about the customer. At some point, there's a bubble if there is a, an opportunity to make a significantly better investment with your resources, but no one's doing it, at some point there's a bubble because people are like eventually going to do it. Eventually it's going to be too big of a discrepancy between point A and point B of American standard of living and Philippines standard of living that it's like we can't, we can't afford to, people, to pay people 100x in America when someone will do as good of a job, if not better, in the Philippines for a hundredth of the cost. Right. And Mm -hmm. currently that's not the disposition. It's still like four or five X right now, but like, that's just mind blowing to me. And so whenever we're thinking about like prices and consumers and like what we can provide value, how much we can provide value at a certain price, like we're just bloating our economy with waste where we could be charging people a more appropriate price for the value that they're actually getting and still create a profit. It's just, yep. yeah, it's mind blowing. The whole idea, this is, this has blown my world up. Do you have any folks on your team yet um, in the Philippines or Colombia? No, we're all American based right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, we just use it to, honestly, we use to amplify some of our leaders and managers in America too. Like our construction team, they all have our, we're, we're expanding a lot of our properties. We're building about, you know, $4 million worth of storage on our current buildings right now. And we have folks in America who are traveling around and overseeing those jobs or project managers. They're not on their computer all day. They're not able to send email all day. They're not able to be super responsive to, you know, contractors, to, you know, customers, to, you know, all the people who reach out to them all day. We pair them with a super competent Colombian, not a, not really an admin, more like a construction manager that's just virtual. And um, they can get three times the amount done. It's crazy. They don't get home from a long day on the road to 40 emails. You know what I mean? Right. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to me. I, I think some of my like philosophical infrastructure that I that I've built up around like lean and the things that Henry Ford taught, particularly in his book like Today and Tomorrow, just around the idea of like building out can can you build an economy? Can you build a business? Can you build a value delivery in such a way that helps and serves maybe even the team member contributing to it? And that, that whole idea is like, I want to build Fords. I don't want to build Lamborghinis. Mm-hmm. And the Ford vehicle back in the day was for the person who worked at Ford. Like it was this flywheel aspect that made it turn into such a 
consumer centric, you know, market centric, economy centric organization rather than like this luxury purse, automobile, whatever. Mm-hmm. It was a thing that was reachable for anyone. And I just keep thinking, man, if we steward the resources correctly and appropriately and guard, like we don't want slave labor, we don't want people living in poor conditions. If we can up someone's standard of living, have our cultural values even be influential for them, maybe, Mm -hmm. and serve the end consumer at a lower cost. Like all of the, it's just like, it's it's good capitalism. Win, 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 win. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I feel like I'm, uh, I'm pitching and selling myself right now on, uh, having Shepard helps out, man. It's, it's super interesting for sure. What do you got going on right now? And what's most exciting in your world that you're kind of focused on? I'm starting a project to write a book, which is exciting. I'm going to, I didn't realize how long and slow writing a book was, but I'll have a, a book about, you know, this mindset of, you know, managing people and entrepreneurship and, and so on, uh, a book on that out and, early 2025. So maybe I'll come back on the pod again before that. Yeah. But um, the work starts early for, for things like that. And yeah, just family and keep on getting uncomfortable and think good things happen. Dang, that's good. Keep on getting comfortable. That's interesting. Man, that just took me for a loop. I don't, uh, I think, I think for me, I grow, life kind of gets better when I'm uncomfortable because if you're just doing the same thing over and over again, you, you get really comfortable. And if mm. I'm constantly kind of going after a little bit of growth, a little bit of, you know, maybe a bigger hire, maybe a, a more, you know, challenging undertaking. I stay uncomfortable and I know that I'm, you know, pushing myself and, and improving because if I'm just going through the motions, then I'm not, uh, not getting any better. Yeah. Well, Nick, I uh, appreciate it. Where can people follow you? I mentioned Twitter at Sweaty Startup. Where else would you point people towards? Yeah. Follow me at Sweaty Startup. I have a, a newsletter that I send out once a week. That's a, a lot of my thoughts on this stuff where I, I spend a lot of time each week writing that. You can find that at sweatystartup.com. And um, I appreciate you having me on, Zach. I love your I, I love your mission. And, and I think we're very aligned in a lot of things. And, and you're doing great work for, for the people in your community. Agreed. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It means a lot. I hope to have you back on. And uh Yeah, we'll have more conversations then. Let's do it. Thanks, Zach. See ya. Well, goodness, thank you to Nick for his time, for his energy, for his investment, and also more than anything for his example, for the way that he's choosing to live on offense and take ground every single day. And thank you to Zach for hosting such a practical and incisive conversation. Hey, real quick, before we close out today, if you enjoyed this podcast and want more content like what we put out on this podcast every single week, I just want to let you know that we send out an email every single Wednesday called Worth It Wednesday. Why do we call it Worth It Wednesday? Because I think email most of the time isn't worth it. It's not worth your time, not worth your energy. So we said, okay, if we're going to send an email, it better be worth it. So every Wednesday, you'll receive an email that you can read in under three minutes, and you're going to get a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. So many of you are already part of the Worth It Wednesday community, and it's so cool to see how you're taking the information and the principles that are embedded in that email and applying them to impact where you work and live. If you want to join that list, you can sign up with the link that's in the show notes or at pathforgrowth.com. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.